Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. We welcome you to the steam room. Ernie Johnson and Charles Barkley, the podcast, which is sponsored by Tractor Supply Company. And it's always a pleasure to be uh, hanging out with the Chuckster, especially in times like this where you got a lot to talk about, man. We saw the Milwaukee Bucks uh, refuse to take the court over the shooting in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Other teams followed suit. Games postponed. Uh, As we speak right now, Chuckster, it looks like uh, play will resume, that the the season is not over. But, man, the last 24 hours or something have been pretty wild. Yeah, Ernie. uh, Hey, first of all, man, it's – Unprecedented times, uh, you know. As a former player, uh, I'm proud of those guys for making a stand. Uh, you know, it takes courage, it takes guts, you know, because they knew. I mean, it was going to be a big deal, uh, and I want to applaud, you know, some of the baseball teams and some of the uh, soccer teams canceling their game. So it was a great day to be in sports yesterday. Like I said, I'm proud of the guys. But my biggest concern was I told them, I said, hey, what's your game plan? Are we going to finish the season? I- I'm going to be, I'm going to ride or die with you guys, but you got to have a game plan. I said, you know, the NBA is bent over backwards to let you guys speak what you want to talk about every day. It has nothing to do with TNT or ESPN. I said, I- the NBA is like, you know, it's a business. But Adam Silver has been great for the players. And I understand. I mean, it's so much craziness going on out here. And it's stressful. And you factor in, these guys aren't around their families. They got to be going a little stir crazy. But they all got television. You watch TV again, seeing a, a young black man shot in the back seven times with his kids in the car. You know, man, and he's paralyzed. And they say he probably won't ever walk again. I'm, I'm, number one, he's amazing to me. Somebody shot seven times and still alive. And listen, I'm not going to get on here and rail against the cops, but I'm going to say this. If there's three cops with guns, there's got to be a better way to de-escalate a situation instead of shooting a guy in the back seven times. I mean, that makes zero sense. I mean, it's three cops with guns. You could tackle this guy. And like I said, I'm trying to play Monday morning quarterback as a cop. But if if it's three cops there, it shouldn't end with a guy getting shot in the back seven times. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, and we're going to talk about that later with uh, with Andrew Yang, who ran for the Democratic nomination for president. And so we will address uh, with him things that he thinks uh, need to be done from a law enforcement standpoint. And um, yeah, I mean, it's like we talked about the other night, Chuck and I 
I say it again. I said, yeah, man, that deadly force has got to be a last resort, man. It can't be your first option or your best option. You know, that's got to be, I don't want to have to get to that point. You know, when you and I talked earlier, we talked about the success, the possibilities of the bubble succeeding. And both of us had said, man, I have some, I have some doubts before everything started, but mine were all based on, you know, I just don't know if you're going to be able to keep that virus away. You know, I just yeah. think, I think somebody's going to break the, the integrity of the bubble or something like that. To the NBA's credit, that's worked like a charm. I mean, the zero positive tests time and time again. Uh, but now the interruption that we're seeing, it comes from uh, uh, this different kind of virus, you know, and that's the, that's the systemic racism. That's the, that's the uh, excessive force. Uh, that's the shooting of Jacob Blake. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, Ernie. So when is the season supposed to end? Uh, Mid-October. Mid-October. So we still got basically another two months. My concern would be, and clearly it happened, it's happening way too often now. I wonder what would happen if they did, if we saw another shooting. Um, Me and you were concerned about the coronavirus, and now this incident happens in Kenosha. Like, I wonder if something else happened in the next two months, would that be the breaking point? That's the thing that scares me going forward. I appreciate what you're saying. I just can't even take my head there right now, man. I can't, I can't imagine if we have to, because I was stunned enough, Charles, to see that video when I woke up the other day. I said, you've got to be kidding me. How can, you know, after what we've just been through and everything that we've just seen, are you kidding me? Yeah. And I've been thinking over the last day or so, I know you said the other day, and my wife has said it, and my kids have said it, and they said, man, 2020 sucks, <laughs> you know, this this year. But you know what? Unless there's a big change of hearts and a big change in the way we go about uh, training our police officers, that kind of thing. Look, and I love, I, I could never do the job that police officers do. They have my utmost respect. I don't have the courage to do that job. I, I, I could never walk out the door every day thinking that this could be my last day here. But it's like, I do think there has to be an adjustment in the way they are being trained and in the thought process. And again, there's got to be a change of heart just in, in, in people in general, just because the ch the calendar changes to 2021 in a few months, yeah, you know, that doesn't mean, oh, good, 2020 is gone. Everything's going to be back to normal. It's not. We got to have a change of heart. I love the fact that you wear your shirt every week. Be a better human. I don't think that's a lot to ask. And Chuck, I was thinking, you know, this was, uh, you know, Kobe's birthday was last Sunday, and then, uh, you know, he would have been 42, and then Monday was Mamba Day. And, you know, and basically the the foundation of that is be better today than you were yesterday. Mm -hmm. And and so I've always, I've, I've thought that, look, this Mamba mentality does not have to apply only to a ball player, man. It's, it's not just if you hoop that you can have that. You can look at yourself and be honest with yourself when you look in the mirror and say, I wasn't that great a dad today. I'm going to do better tomorrow. I wasn't that great a husband. I wasn't that great a parent. I wasn't that great a teacher today. I wasn't whatever that line of work is. And I think if you do take that into account, 
And no matter what your line of work is, whether you're in politics, whether you're in business, whether you're in law enforcement, if you can look at that and say, uh, the mamba mentality says, tomorrow I'm going to be better than I was today, that's huge. That really is. So don't don't ever think that, okay, yeah, Kobe was a hooper and, and all his advice only pertains to basketball players. No, that's for everybody in any walk. Yeah, I totally agree with you, man. And we really need some grown people to stand up right now. We need some adults in the room. Uh, we need some real people who don't have a hidden agenda. This is a big point in our lives right now. No doubt. We've got a great uh, a great podcast today. It is, I mean, it is that way every week, if you ask me, Chuckster. I think you agree that uh, we have a lot of fun doing this. And, and, and given the nature of what's been going on lately, having Chris Weber on is going to be great. Uh, having Andrew Yang on. I can't wait to talk to Andrew Yang. Uh, I mean, I see, I, I, hey, I talk to C. Webb all the time, but I'm <laughs> to have an official presidential candidate on the show is going to be pretty cool. It certainly is. Uh, so, look, you've tuned into the steam room, and I think you're glad you did. And we'll be right back. everybody's attention around the world right now. But I'm here to speak for those that are always marginalized. Charles Barkley came to my high school. Just seeing him in the locker room, that inspired me. You can't be something till you see it. If not now, when? We understand it's not gonna end. But that does not mean, young men, that you don't do anything. Don't listen to these people telling you don't do anything because it's not gonna end right away. So I applaud it. I applaud it because it is the young people it is the young people leading the way. See, Webb, thanks for being here. Uh, we had uh, spent part of uh, Wednesday night with you on our pregame show. You were uh, spectacular in uh, voicing your your thoughts on what we had seen that day in the NBA, which was unprecedented. Uh, we're understanding now that games will continue. As we speak right now, we don't know exactly when. But just put it all into perspective for us in uh, in terms of from the bubble down there of what the players have done um, and what they can do moving forward. Yeah, EJ, I mean, there was a lot of emotion into it yesterday. I'm thankful to, to be with a company like Turner that allows us to have these conversations because we can say what we feel, but you can't criticize anyone for their opinion. You know, I can't say you're not right or or you must kneel for the flag or all that. Everybody has the right to do what they believe is right. And so I was inspired by the fact that through this impulse, even though it may not have been communicated the correct way and other things that the result was a pause and starting a conversation. I think that, you know, you can't have change right away but I think some of the conversations that they started are gonna reverberate through neighborhoods, through families. And I think, and I hope that there's a plan of action to follow through after. You know, Chris, me and Ernie, they decided to keep us not in the bubble. And, you know, you hear guys, you talk, talk Paul George has talked about it a little bit. Is there an anxiety just being in the bubble? Because you've been there. How long have you been there now? 
I've only been here about 12 days, but it's some players that have been here 45 days. It's tough in the bubble, but you get room service, you know, it's, you know, it's beautiful outside. You get to go play golf before. A lot of these guys, they haven't seen their families. And I was really surprised, Chuck, at the end of the game that we did when Jared interviewed Paul George and he said that he was in a dark place. I mean, that was the most honest interview I'd ever seen. And I, I was surprised because I didn't think about that. It hasn't affected me like that, Chuck. And this is the longest time I've gone without seeing my children, you know? And so it's tough in that aspect. But I think over there, because you have all the guys eating in the same rooms, you know what I mean? It's like a camp. So, yeah. you know, if it was during the regular season and guys are in different cities, I don't know if this could have happened. I think because guys are on the same campus, it's nothing to do besides watch TV or hang out with each other that these conversations started happening naturally and then it spread like wildfire. So I definitely heard over in the bubble, you know, it's, it's, it's as tough as it can be because you don't have, you know, those friends, those relationships, you can't get out. How do you wind down after a game? All those type of things. So I can only imagine how, how tough it is, but I think the fact that all the players were together on that campus allowed them to talk and to speak to each other, not through FaceTime or on phones, but man to man. And I think that that sparked a lot of dialogue and discussion. There has to be a degree of helplessness uh, in the bubble. Uh, look, I know room service. I know golf. I know, I mean, that you have these amenities down there. But uh, when you can't go and you're watching things happen like Kenosha, can you speak to the frustration level of that feeling of here we are and we can't do anything in person about it or, you know, be there to be, to talk to people in Kenosha or anything like that? Yeah, EJ, and talking to some players, it felt like they were letting people down. They felt as if there are people out there protesting and doing things and to really show their power is to show we're man of the people and we're out here with you. So I think a lot of that frustration was they felt like we're here watching TV, we're here playing sports, and life is going on outside, and we want to be part of that. And I think that, that that's the problem that the bubble created. If you could play a game in L.A., a home game, and then go protest and get right back to practice the next day, it probably would be um, a better feeling. And, and that helplessness that you talked about, that's exactly what they've expressed to me. The fact that, listen, I can't do anything. I'm in a room. I can't even call. I can't, you know, what do I do? What do I do? And I think that anxiousness built up. And they said, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. We're in the bubble, but we're going to stop it for a second to make the world see that we want to be active, if anything. I got to give Adam Silver a lot of credit. Uh, no, number one, because I didn't think they could pull this thing off with no positive COVID tests. But also, he's given these guys an amazing platform an amazing platform. How have you think the NBA has handled this whole situation before what happened in Kenosha? You know, I've always tried to be a company guy, but you're a company guy, Chuck, and you tell the truth, you know? And I'm proud of the NBA. I mean, when I came down here in the bubble, I didn't think it was going to work. I called Reggie, others, how is it? Oh, don't worry. I mean, you get tested every other day, Chuck. It's a safe environment. Um, everyone is respectful of the rules because they don't want to be the weak link to, you know, messing up the bubble. Um, it's, it's being back with the, the workers again. It's, it's a really – actually, it's really kind of joyful to see the guys that you haven't seen in a while and working with. I think the NBA has done a great job with communication. I think Adam Silver has done a great job of working with the NBA Players Association. 
Um, and even in this time, I trust that Alvin Silver knows that he works for the owners and that he better come through for them. And I think he knows the players depend and trust on him, and he's that bond between both. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the way that the NBA has handled this because no one expected it to happen, even if it's through the silence, even if it's through phone calls in the back, back door and, and things like that. But I just think um, the NBA has done a great job, man, in the bubble, protecting people, giving us great content, giving us great games, and, um, you know, even handling this and communicating with the players, not letting it get out of hand. I really respect that. How weird is it just calling the games? I mean, just the spectacle of the games down there with no fans. I know you got the virtual stuff going on, but is it, what do you feel like you're watching when you're calling a game, see? I feel like it's like the summer leagues. Uh, it's way more competitive than that, but that's the feel on the floor. Where we sit, we're, we're up and, you know, we're encased in glass and then below us, are, you know, maybe where GMs and owners sit, and there's only maybe 20 people there, and they sit kind of in rows of twos, and they don't clap or, you know, <laughs> they don't get boisterous. You, you know what I mean? The energy comes from the benches. That's what I like watching the benches. It's, um, it's, it's really weird, but I'll tell you what, though. After the beginning of the games, because of the great job by production, I forget everything because those boards look really real. They're about 20 feet tall. So you realize they aren't fans, but then again, sometimes you really can't tell on both ends. And so it, it's been weird, but you get lost in the middle of the competition uh, as soon as it gets good. The players have played their behinds off. I really want to take my hat off to the players because from day one, the game started. They've been competitive. They've been good games. I love what Portland did. I love what Memphis did. I love what the Phoenix Suns did. And now in the playoffs, Man, with all the stuff going on, whoever wins the championship this year, I've heard some people talk about it being an asterisk. I'm like, hey, there's no asterisk on this. What these young men have been through, man, it's, it's, it's one of the greatest things I've seen in my life. Uh, I, I, like I say, I was pessimistic that it could work. We still got a long way to go, but to get this far, I got to take my hat off to Adam and the players. Uh, you know, they've just been amazing. So we know you're a great player, but nobody really knows how you used to bust somebody's ass in practice, right? And you know how in practice you can have just as good of a practice as a game except you're really loud and can't nobody check me and, and, and it's that much. That's what's been going on here too. Yeah. The, the fact that there's no distraction and no crowd and guys are talking like, no, you can't hide from nobody now. I'm not going to lie. I didn't put an asterisk. But I said before the playoffs that everybody was saying if LeBron wins, this is the hardest playoff. And I said, I don't know, because it's no travel. That's the hardest on your body when you're older. Uh, it's no meeting. There's no media. Everything's easier. But I agree with you. With everything that is going on, it's not even an asterisk. It's almost a plus sign. Like, it was a little harder that year uh, yeah. to, to do it. I, 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 I totally agree. And, but I do think the young players that have been scoring so great, and playing, I'd like to know what you think about this, Chuck. Before this moment, I thought the young players that were scoring, it was um, because they couldn't feel the pressure of the fans. You know, it wasn't like them yelling at you and you stink, you suck, or coming back from game two and you missed 15 shots. And, or what about Paul George having to go to Dallas and them going airball, you know? So at first I thought, man, it's a little bit easier, but you're right now. With these eyes magnified, I don't know if we've ever had a season this tough.
not that I'm a defensive player, there's not a lot of defense being played in the bubble. No. I mean, the offenses have showed up, but, man, the defenses have been awful. Yeah. Um, the, the Lakers, they've actually been, to me, probably, and the Bucks. they've been the two best defensive teams all along. How about Toronto? I cannot wait for that Boston-Toronto Toronto, Toronto Boston, man, they both D. I know that, but let me tell you something. If they can lock down all three of them guys, I'm going to stand up and applaud the Raptors. But they got a three-headed monster up in Boston to shut those three guys down. That would be impressive. I guarantee. Oh, <laughs> shut up. Toronto. <laughs> hey, Chuck, let me ask you this. I, I know this might hurt. But what's your boys in Philly going to do? You know, I, I've said this before. It's time for Joel Embiid and Ben Summers to grow up and become grown men. Joel Embiid, Joel Embiid has got to get in shape. And, and Ben Simmons got to work on his game. You know, Brett Brown is a good guy. But he didn't, he didn't demand enough out of his two superstars. Well, they're not superstars. They're all-stars. You know, we should not be all these years in and Ben Simmons won't shoot. That's the, like, you should get better as a player from year to year. And we should not be worried about if Joel Embiid is going to be in condition. You know, they gave both of them guys $150 million. Listen, if I give anybody $150 million, I should be able to tell them what to do. <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, and, and listen, that's the thing that's scary, see, Webb? Because I live in Philly during the summer, and I'm asking about it every day. And they says, I said, listen, the least a guy can do if I give him $150 million is to work on his jump shot. The least a guy can do if I give him $150 million is get in shape. That's not a lot to ask. Yeah. Oh, uh, let me ask you, Chris Well, what the hell happened with Nate McMillan? Chuck, so we did the game, and all I kept thinking was, this is what I thought after the game, man. I can't wait till Nate McMillan gets a healthy roster. Oladipo wasn't that healthy. They don't have Sabonis, Sabo, I mean, an all-star. And I'm thinking, like, man, because and the team played hard. Warren, he allowed him to grow, and they played defense. They played hard. They just, there's no way they could beat Miami, period. And so after the game, all I was saying is, man, they're going to have a good summer. They're going to be tough next year, you know. I don't know what happened. And But a coach um, that we interviewed said this to me. They said, um, maybe in the exit meeting, you know, someone said, well, hey, we think you could do like do this. And he said, well, well, if you think you could do a better job. So I don't know, but I know he did not deserve to get fired. I, I know that. I know he can. he's one of the best coaches in this league to me, and um, I don't understand that move. I was very disappointed in that one. And I was disappointed in the uh, Alvin Gentry firing, too, because you should give a coach a chance with a healthy team. New Orleans, to me, that, that's a good job if Zion can stay healthy. That's the one thing. The three jobs that's, that that's open are great jobs, no in doubt. my opinion. I mean, Indiana, listen, when they get that boy Sabonis back and Oladipo get a year on his leg, Philly, there are three great openings in the NBA right now, and I, I can't wait to see what they're going to do. Hey, appreciate you guys. All right, man. Be safe, c Well, All right. Love you guys, man. Love you, hey, love you too, C. Thanks, man. We welcome you back to the steam room. Special guest today. You are absolutely right, Chuckster. And as we tell all of the special guests, 
into the steam room. Please keep your towel on. Andrew Yang. Wow, this is this is really cool to have you on here. You you ran for president on the Democratic side. We saw you in the debates and just look forward to having you share your perspective on where we are in the world. And you're an NBA fan. You can talk about where we are in the NBA, too. So thanks a lot for joining us, man. We appreciate you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Big fan of both of you. I can't tell you how many times I have seen you all on TNT dissecting a game I just watched. <laughs> and it still resembles the game you watched. That's the good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, so listen, what was your, it takes guts and courage to say, I'm going to run for president of the United States. And first of all, you probably have to talk to your wife before you make a decision like that. How was that first conversation with your wife? My wife didn't take it that seriously the first time, Charles. Uh, and I, I've been a serial entrepreneur for a number of years. So she heard, I was like, hey, baby, I think I'm uh, uh, running for president. And she was like, oh, okay, let's talk about that again. <laughs> it was that, that, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, she was a rock and a rock star uh, throughout. And certainly when I decided to run, I was not a household name. And so uh, neither she nor I really knew what that run would look like. Um, so I'm really grateful that she uh, supported her husband's somewhat crazy vision from day one that became less crazy as time went on. Well, I, I got to give you a lot of credit. Uh, I, I was at a debate and I watched the rest of them. You held up really, really well. You were very confident. You knew what your agenda. Uh, how does how how, how that debate process? Because that's got to be a little stressful. It took some getting used to, Charles, in part because I thought it would be a debate and not what it turned out to be, which was essentially a very long cable news segment. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I started realizing, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I, I'm starting to understand that. Like, uh, everyone just comes with preloaded talking points and then just jams them in for whatever question they got. Uh, then, then it clarified my approach significantly. Uh, but thank you for... Uh, for the kind words, it, it was certainly one of the the biggest adaptations I had to make because you're not used to getting up and arguing with professional politicians in front of 20 million Americans. That's for sure. And in the in the formats of those debates, I mean, there were times, Andrew, where it looked like there were about 55 people on that stage, and you're saying, "How does anybody get?" their thoughts out and are you getting frustrated when that when nobody's when maybe they're not asking you a specific question and you're trying to wedge your way in there i, I got a lot of china questions and i was like i wonder why that is <laughs> but, uh, yeah there it was unfortunately it was a really negative set of incentives where you had a bunch of candidates that thought well if i don't uh, start throwing rocks uh, quickly i'm going to be off the stage forever and so you you just had this race to the bottom uh, i'm really grateful to the folks who supported me that gave me the momentum and staying power to make the the stages and just stay on there uh, because i saw the desperation in some other candidates and their teams were telling them the same thing each of these candidates has a whole team around them. Like you all, you know, in your world, it would be coaches, but they, they have this whole battalion of staffers that are all like, you need to set the world on, like, you know, uh, on fire or like do something tremendous on stage or else we're all going to lose our jobs. <laughs> that, that's really no the pressure. vibe that a lot of <laughs> candidates bring into those things. Listen, when I went, uh, I watched all the debates on television. I got to tell you something. 
television does not do them justice. Because when I actually went to the debate, I thought it sucked for the points you mentioned. It's like the, 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 the commentators only go to the people they want to go to. And if you if you don't say something rude or interrupt somebody, you really don't, don't get to say what you want to say. Yeah, and and in my case, I had the sense that if, if I became the jerk, one, it would be, frankly, like a little bit out of character for me. Like, you know, I'd have to really force myself. And I did get some advice from my team uh, about trying to jerk it up. But, <laughs> but, the, but, but the other thing is I thought that it would be uh, easier to marginalize me, frankly. Just for the record, if you would have been a jerk, you probably could get elected today. <laughs> Well, we certainly have one giant example of that, Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> it would seem uh, like when you've uh, when you've got like the freedom dividend, you know, and you need something that sets you apart, and and you know, when somebody hears your name, they say, "Oh, yeah, that's the freedom dividend guy." Uh, you know, isn't that isn't that an accurate way to say? Look, when you're trying to separate yourself from the pack, you have to have something that people just think of immediately. Is that part of the uh, part of the process and part of part of the strategy, uh, Ernie? I had a note on my phone that said, "Just remember, to the vast majority of America, you are the magical Asian man that wants to give everyone money." <laughs> <laughs> so, as as long as that's what people took from my debate appearances or anything I did, I was pretty happy because, like you said, if you can get one big idea associated with yourself, then that's kind of a win. So you see the way things turned out. I, I, I want to say I was disappointed personally as a Democrat. I felt the Democrats did the exact same thing they did four years ago, where they says, y'all are going to vote for Hillary Clinton. We're not going to listen to any other candidates. We're going to ride or die with Hillary Clinton. I thought when everything started out, we're going to have a fair debate system, listen to everybody, and I thought the Democratic Party hijacked the thing and said, no, 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 we don't care about anybody else. We're going with Joe Biden. That's it. We're not going to have no surprise candidate. We don't want any anybody else. We're going with Joe Biden. Did you feel that? Because that's just what I felt. Well, it was certainly the case that the media paid more attention to some candidates than others. Uh, but throughout the process, no, Charles, I think that people were trying to figure out who the alternative to Joe was. And after Jim Clyburn in South Carolina came out for Joe, then everything consolidated around Joe um, pretty quickly. So the subtext to all of it is that people are trying to figure out who's the best suited to beat Trump uh, in a straight up one-on-one -on -one race. And people began, began to feel more and more confident that Joe was that candidate. So you know, as someone who was part of the process, were there fingers on the scales for certain candidates? Yeah, there were. I mean, you can't argue that. Uh, but did the people end up homing in on Joe as the best candidate to defeat Trump? Yeah, they did. Uh, you know, and a lot of that is the people of South Carolina. Hey, what do you think it's going to look like in November, uh, Andrew? Because there's so much talk about mail-in ballots. There's, uh, it's almost like the president is already planting this seed that if uh, that if he doesn't win, it's because it's rigged and all this. But I mean, how long after election day do you think we're going to know who the president is? It depends upon the vote margins in different places, Ernie. Uh, so if you have a wide enough vote margin where you can be confident 
that it went to a certain candidate, regardless of whether the mail-in vote has been fully counted, uh, yeah. then you could get that state in pretty quickly. For example, I'm pretty confident that you're going to know uh, New York's results pretty quickly or something like that, you know, <laughs> like, a, yeah. like a very clean blue or red state. They'll be like, yeah, we can call that one. Uh, the, the tough part is the swing states. And the concern is that we're going to be waiting for days or weeks if you don't have a clear margin in Michigan, Florida, Ohio, and some other places. Uh, and, and that is the danger behind trying to cast doubt on the mechanisms of our democracy, because we could be waiting a while. And time has a, a, an unfortunate effect where we all get together November 3rd and watch the results. And then if you don't get results, then like the, the days start trickling in. And then it's harder to maintain the same level of energy if literally it's days or weeks later when you say, and this person won. I mean, we're all old enough to remember the uh, Bush-Gore race. Hanging chads. Yeah, the hanging chads and the Florida recount. And then like eventually Gore was like, look, I'm just going to concede for the good of the country, uh, even though we could have kept contesting. So that's the nightmare scenario that we all hope does not unfold this fall. But if you look at the margin and the nature of the the battleground states, unfortunately, it's quite possible, even likely, that we don't get a clear result the night of. You know, we've been stuck in a pandemic for a while now. How has the Yang household been with two young kids in quarantine, basically, <laughs> for the last five months? Yeah, because I was thinking those are probably sounds coming out of your place and not Chuck's place right now. And they're not That's in my, my place. place. Yeah, my, my place. The miniature <laughs> Yang Yang is running around. Uh, you know, it, it's been a lot. Uh, certainly, I'm even more grateful to Evelyn and to parents everywhere uh, who have taken on so much during this time. And we were just talking before about I'm not sure my kids are going back to school in September. I think their schools have gone virtual. Uh I, I will say, I don't think it's good for my kids. And I think it's bad for kids around the country, what's gone on this last number of months. Like, it's very, very bad for your social and emotional and um, educational development to spend all this time at home or staring at screens. Like, we shouldn't lie to ourselves and be like, oh, virtual is just as good. It's not. You know, the, the math says that you learn 30 to 70% less online versus in person. And that's not even counting all of the social development. As a former nerdy Asian kid myself who learned to play basketball in part to, <laughs> to, to try and break out of that, uh, but uh, you need that socialization. You, you know, my kids need it really bad and I can sense that they are not developing certain social skills as a result of this time. Well, I'm gonna ask you a, lo I'm gonna ask you a loaded question. You can, you can be honest or not. Have you realized now that your kids are brats, that you're spending all this time with them? Because all my friends have been saying the same thing, like, yo, man, I'm starting to realize my kids are brats and when I'm stuck at home with them all day. Oh, I, I've known this for quite some time, Charles. <laughs> like, I, like, I had this, this joke on the trail. It was like, look, my kids are soft. You know, like, we have to fix a country so that they could actually still have a country that, that like, soft kids can... <laughs> come of age in and not have someone do something terrible to them. And, and it, it seemed kind of funny at the time. 
I actually even showed a picture of my kids and they looked kind of soft. So we got to laugh, uh, but <laughs> you know, and, and, and keep in mind, I'm, I'm like the, the child of immigrants too. So my parents were just like, you know, like didn't have a clue and we're like, figure it out. And then like me and my brother were just like, all right. It's like, you just sort of like shoved down into the, you know, like uh, into the world. Um, so I look at the way my kids are growing up versus the way I grew up and I just shake my head, Charles, because, you know, you can't go back in time and it's a different time and, you know, you're a different person than your parents were. It's so ironic that you say that because Ernie's a little bit different than the rest of us because his dad was a famous baseball announcer, played baseball. So Ernie grew up with some stuff. So Ernie always had stuff. Like when you grew up poor and you have nothing and then when you have kids, it is like a really, and I've been in the NBA since 1984, and I've seen crash stories. I've seen success. I've seen, I mean, a lot of ups and downs. How do you juggle? Because I have struggled with it myself, to be honest with you. Because I remember my daughter came home at 16 and said, Dad, can I have a car? I said, who in the hell gets a car at 16? <laughs> and... I said, you're not going to get a car. I got an old beat-up used car when I graduated high school. My mom and grandmother scraped together and gave me a, a beat-up car. And that's what you—that's what all the poor kids did. And then when my daughter was 16, she went to this, this privileged private school. And she said, Dad, I want to talk to you. And I said, yes, baby, you can ask me anything. She said, Dad, can I get a car? I said, you're 16. Who has a car at 16? She says, everybody at my school? <laughs> and I was like, oh, real? So I called my grandmother, who was the greatest person in my life ever. And I said, Granny, I got to talk to you about Christiana. She asked me for a car. And she says, well, what are you going to do? I said, Granny, you gave me a beat-up car for graduation when I was 18. I'm not going to get her a car at 16. And she said, Charles, Christiana life is not your life. So I know exactly what you're talking about. So I bought her the car. But it's really weird when you said that about your kids, like, how do you juggle that growing up how you and your brother did and you obviously are enormously successful now? How do you get strike that balance with your kids growing up about what to give them, what not to give them? It's tough. Like you said, um, you know, your upbringing is going to be different than theirs just inevitably. Um, and so you hope to develop character in them in ways that are different than the way perhaps that you developed character. You know, like it, like it, it might be more around trying to give them a sense of empathy and perspective rather than material deprivation. Like in my case, it was material deprivation. And so you kind of get used to certain things <laughs> you know, like, like in, the, in their case. And, you know, not that I, I mean, I didn't grow up, um, you know, in as, in as adverse circumstances as, um, you know, many others. But uh, but still, you know, you grow up first generation in this family and, you know, like your your parents' English is not so great and, you know, like you walk into school and, like, you know, you don't know, um, you know, what you're supposed to be wearing or doing or like any of that stuff. Um, so I think you have to try and push your kids in different ways, Charles, like in, in ways that were different than the way you got pushed by the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and in some ways it's a higher bar for the parent because you have to really exert yourself because it's not going to happen naturally. Let's talk about the NBA for a second. Your your tweet yesterday was short and to the point. You said good for the Bucks uh, as they sat that game out and then all three games were postponed. Uh, apparently the word now is that the season will resume. We just don't know exactly what how that schedule is going to play out. But uh, 
Andrew, in, in your mind, what can NBA players do, like in the wake of what we saw in Kenosha, what would be what would be the best plan for NBA players to get their message across and to create change? Well, first, it's heartbreaking for all of us to see what, that this is still happening, and it's been happening for years and decades. You can even imagine uh, what happened to Jacob Blake in the absence of a video. You know, there'd be some story about some struggle, and then like no one would know. But because of the video, we all know. Uh, so the first thing is you need to hold the actual officers in these cases accountable. Uh, the officer that killed Breonna Taylor, the officer that shot Jacob Blake. Uh, you can't have a society where some people are able to feel like they're somehow above the law. And that includes police officers who end up killing or paralyzing or, or uh, brutalizing American citizens. So that's number one. And so the, the fact that the Bucks are saying, look, to, to the legislators in Wisconsin, like you need to convene, pass some of these laws and hold people accountable, I think is the direct first step. Um, but Ernie, when I looked at the, the bigger picture, um, this is a massive problem ongoing. And, and I think the, the struggle for NBA players is that you're concerned about police brutality, which is a massive problem. Um, and then there is racism, which is a whole other set of problems. Uh, and if you focus on the, the, the police brutality, there are a number of policies that would change things. And it's a real fight to get those policies adopted. But that to me is where the attention should be, the energy should be. So what are these policies? What, what does it mean? Number one, you have to try and change the rules of engagement for police officers. You have to say no chokeholds. Uh, you have to de-escalate use of force. You have to warn before you use a firearm. You have to have these non-lethal measures before you shoot to kill. Uh, you have to have a standard where officers, if they see another officer doing something excessive, then it is their responsibility to intervene. These, these are rules that would help uh, reduce this violence. And so that's one thing they should be fighting for, in my view. Uh, the second thing is union rules. And so this is where it starts getting nitty gritty, is that police officers have a lot of protections baked in, um, and including a standard that makes it very difficult to punish. It's one reason why when you see what's happening with these officers, it seems like it takes forever for anyone to be held accountable. Uh, and one reason for that is that there are union rules in place that make it very difficult um, for uh, for police officers to be held accountable. Uh, and that's exacerbated by the fact that if you're a local district attorney, the last thing you want to do is mess with the local police uh, force. That like They're literally your best friends most of the time. They're making the cases for you. Uh, and so if for you to turn around and say, well, this police officer uh, needs to be held accountable, it's very, very difficult. Um, so the union rules, number two, the, the third thing which plays into the local versus federal is like you need more federal oversight. Uh, you need someone you can call when this sort of thing goes down because there are 18,000 police departments around the country. Uh, and so you're, you're talking about 18,000 different cultures, 18,000 different police chiefs, eight, you know, 18,000 different... And so if you're trying to get into the guts of this problem, there needs to be some kind of uh, national body that says, look, this is a massive, tragic, brutalizing problem and we need to do something about it. So these are some of the things that, that I would be pushing. One thing that I think the NBA players are really passionate about is you need more non-police intervention. 
where a lot of the times when you're getting these phone calls, it's for something that you don't need a police, an armed police officer for. It's like someone who's struggling with addiction uh, or like a mental health problem. And if you send a police officer there with a gun and the person doesn't obey orders, then something terrible can happen. Something like a third of the victims of police shootings are mentally ill. So if you had more people that were trained to deal with mentally ill uh, folks that didn't come armed or you sent them with police officers, that would be an enormous benefit. As you can tell, I'm very passionate about this stuff, Ernie. No, without question. Uh, it, it, and, it, it and we, Andrew, we need to be. I mean, that's, that's it, we have to be passionate about this. And I think um, when I, look, I've never been to a police training facility. I don't know what, what a, a kid goes through when he decides I want to do this and I'm going to go through the academy. But, but to me, it was, and as we talked about it the other night, I said that that use of deadly force has got to be a last resort and not a best option. You know, that it, it's, it's, it, and that's why when we keep seeing these and we, and we just keep on shaking our heads and say, when's it going to end? Uh, it has to, there just has to be going back to your point, something in the training that says, look, we don't want to do this guys. We don't want this to happen. This says it all, Ernie. On average, an officer gets 58 hours of training on uh, firing a gun and use of lethal force and eight hours of training on de-escalating violent situations. So if, if that is your training, what are you going to do in those situations? You know, you're trained uh, to shoot, to kill, and you're not trained to de-escalate. And so you need to change that balance very dramatically if you expect behaviors to, to change. Uh, so, so these are some of the things that we should be fighting for, in my view. Uh, it's, uh, it's gone very, very far where you have literal military forces in the hand or military grade weaponry in the hands of thousands of police departments because we've sent billions of dollars in military hardware to police departments. And then if you expect them then to have a, a more community oriented mindset when they literally are driving around in tanks, you know, like that's a mismatch. Like we're, like we're doing things that are creating, like creating cultures in these police departments that lead to this kind of violence. Uh, and it breaks my heart. Uh, it, it's something that we need to change in a dramatic fashion in this country. Uh, and I, I feel for every, certainly every black man who's seeing this over and over again and saying like, what the heck uh, can we do? Uh, it, it's agonizing. Uh, but for all Americans, it's just devastating to see. Andrew, yeah, you know, uh, go ahead. You, I'll let you. Well, so, but I want to get him out of here on something lighter. Oh, yeah, I was going yeah. to. So, listen, you said you were 44. 45. 45, but yeah, who's counting? 45. And they tell me you're a Knicks fan. I, I was. Because <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm just trying to say, as long as you've been alive, they have sucked. So how are you a Knicks fan? You know, Charles, I remember your playing career very well. I remember your MVP season in 93 uh, with the Suns. Um, and so I remember the Knicks led by Patrick Ewing and Charles Oakley and those guys, uh, John Starks, Anthony Mason, uh, that entire crew, they were competitive throughout my entire teenage, uh, you know, experience, you know, did they win a title? No. Like, you know, did they lose to Michael every year? Yes. But we were good, competitive, hard nosed, a great team to root for. So are you going to stick with your Knicks? Or are you going to be a front runner and run over to Brooklyn? 
so I ended up kind of breaking up with the Knicks uh, when they, I mean, it was just one bridge too far, but when they dumped Jeremy Lin, it was just too much. And I was like, I just oh, can't girl. Yeah. Um, and it was over money of all things. Are you kidding me? This is the franchise that overpaid Jerome James by like 30 million for like, you know, like one good game or whatever. And they like couldn't pay Jeremy Lin, like essentially like our adopted hometown hero. It made me so angry and sad. I was like, I just give up. Um, and so then I, I tried to become, then I was a basketball nomad uh, or vagabond for a little while, which was pr- frankly very difficult. Uh, and then I slowly started becoming a Nets fan because of Kenny Atkinson and Sean Marks. They're like a good, scrappy, young, competitive team. So it wasn't the front runner thing, Charles. It wasn't like, ooh, KD and Kyrie are here. Let me get on board. Um, it was the fact that they had a good culture. They were competitive, scrappy. They were developing people. Essentially, they were the opposite of the Knicks, who haven't developed a good <laughs> player in 20 years. Well, they developed Porzingis. <laughs> they, they, yeah, they developed him right out of there, and, and then they traded him for like a bag of chips. That was that was a good time too. <laughs> well, I tell you, when you started steering this uh, conversation in the Knicks direction, that was right in the wheelhouse, Chuckster. Uh, Andrew Yang, thank you so much. We uh, we consider you a loyal steamer now, and you can consider us uh, honorary members of the the Yang Gang, and uh, and we appreciate so much your perspective and and the time that you gave us today and thanks for for not you know lording that ivy league education over these two sec guys we appreciate uh, the fact that you dumbed it down for us you you guys have been voices of both reason and joy for me uh, over the last number of years and decades i'm super uh, grateful to you all i'm a big fan of you both and uh, you know you uplift a lot of people um, this time, but any time, really. So, uh, you know, don't sell yourself short. Uh, I've been a big fan of, of your work for a long time. And when I got this request, uh, I was like, no way, me on the NBA on TNT, which this is not quite that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> no, hey, no, no, this is better. Hey, listen, we can go around bragging that we had a presidential candidate on there, too. That's going to be big yeah. on our resume. I bet a future presidential candidate, too. You're going to run again, aren't you? Uh, well, Ernie, as long as the problems are there and I can do something about it, I'm going to oh, do so, everything hey, I can. Hey, that's a hard yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My kids aren't getting any more rugged, that's for sure, Charles. I better do something. <laughs> and, and I know this is one of your themes, so you'll like this shirt, too. Yes. There you go. Be a better human indeed. We need yes, so much indeed. more of that, Ernie. Like, hey. and, I, you know, and I appreciate how hard it is right now because it's just a very difficult time for everyone. Yeah, those are my buddies at Combat Flip Flops who put those out. And it's, it's really become my uniform for this podcast because, man, we got to keep on trying to we got to keep on trying to improve and do better. So uh, we appreciate uh, the input you had today, man. You had some wonderful ideas. And so thank you much. Thank you both. Appreciate the heck out of you. Stay safe. Yes, sir. You too. Will do. That, that was that was awesome. You know, he, man, he was so good in the debates when it, when he and when he's been on television. Yeah, he'd be a great person to have in your cabinet. Somebody smart enough to who who really passionate, who's really smart. Yep. Who speaks with common sense. I mean, you can never have enough of those type of people around you. We, uh, we welcome you back inside the steam room. Uh, if you uh, are a loyal steamer, you know how we always uh, wind it up. If this is your first time in the steam room, we always finish with uh, the old school Chuck's answering machine. Roll it. You've reached Charles Barkley. 
Leave a message, America. Hello, Mr. Barkley and Mr. Johnson. This is Brad from Stillwater, Minnesota. I was just calling to say thank you. I've appreciated your guys' podcast and the uh, the topics you've discussed, bringing awareness to mental health issues and the guests you've had on to open up and talk about their struggles. I myself struggle with PTSD, um, and it's reassuring to hear from other people that it's not it's a uh, problem a lot of people face and it's with these trying times now I feel it's a more universal problem and I wish more people understood that and I just wanted to again say thank you and it's been Good to hear. It's helped me a lot. Thank you and take care. Wow. Wow. Man. That call, that Ooh. call means, man, that, that call man. means the world. It really does. Yeah, y'all got the, you got the tux, tux to tearing up. You know, Ernie. Wow. Um, man, Brad, uh, wow. Thank you. Bless you. Uh, uh, thank you for your service too. And I just want to say, man, you made me feel so much better today with that call. I mean, cause I'm not going to lie. My life has sucked the last few days because man, this is stressful. When you're a black celebrity, you get asked every black problem that goes on. So this thing has been really stressful, uh, but Brad, man, you made me feel so much better. And I'm so glad that me and Ernie can make things better for you. When we we got this silly little podcast that's been awesome to do, we've had some amazing guests. I have people walking up to me on the streets just talking about, yo, man, I really enjoyed uh, J.J. Watt, Nick Saban, Sanjay Gupta. You know, Andre Iguodala. I mean, some of the guests we've had, it's been amazing. Yeah, and and Chuck, when I when you hear that call from Brad, uh, my mind went to the show we did with Rex Chapman. Yeah, who has talked about having to overcome uh, opioid addiction, which basically destroyed his life before he's rebuilt it, and and so I know that. Brad's call was to thank us for, you know, helping him through that. But it it was just us talking to people who have been yeah. down some dark roads and have seen the light again. And so uh, the thanks goes to guys like Rex, you know, who opens up about something like this. And you, you have no idea, like, how many people you can impact by just telling your story the way Rex did. And then it you know, it kind of makes the day of a guy like Brad, who then has the stones to get on that answering machine. And as, as emotional as he was, make that call. And, yeah. and knowing that, you know what, they might actually put this out here and that may actually get on that podcast yeah. and millions of people may hear it. 
But you know what? That was the power of that phone call from Brad was that he had to struggle to make it through it. And, and you know what? That's another step. That's another step sure. in just reclaiming your life. So man, Brad, you, yeah, you, you fire up me and me and the Chuckster. You, you know, Ernie, he fired, remember when the lady called us who had lost her job? Mm-hmm. And she said, uh, this reminds me, this is obviously a little bit different, but the lady who had lost her job during the pandemic who says, you know, I started walking every day and I started listening to you guys on the podcast. And I just want to thank y'all for making me feel great for an hour doing the podcast. I was like, man, that's what, that's why we do this podcast. You're exactly right. Uh, so, so Brad, man, you made me feel great today. <laughs> you know, Ernie? I tell people, I've said I don't know 500,000 times in the last 24 hours. Everybody's like, you think they're going to play again? I don't know. When they going to play? When is the season? If they play, when are you going to start? They're going to play again. I don't know. So I'm sick of saying I don't know. But, man, thank you for that call, Brad. That was awesome. It certainly was. What a great way to great way to finish off uh, this episode of, of the Steam Room, which is presented by – Tractor Supply Company. Um, hey, before we split, Chuckster, oh, what you got? What you? Okay. I found some solid gold. Okay, some solid hey, gold. Microband. We mentioned microband. You know, I'm a clean fanatic, and I found yep. this stuff, microband, and I ran out, and I was going insane. So I want to thank the people at microband for sending me the microband. You guys make a fantastic product, and thank you. Hey, and and Chuckster, you know the group Sounds of Blackness. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I've uh, they've always been on my like on my Christmas playlist because they got some great stuff. But they've also got a new song out called "Sick and Tired," and uh, Gary Dennis Hines, who's a member of uh, Sounds of Blackness, reached out to me and was saying, "Man, I'd like for you to." Help me get the word out about this song. So we're doing that. So check it out. It's called Sick and Tired, Sounds of Blackness. There's a great video that goes with it. Sick and Tired, Sounds of Blackness. Yep. Check it out if you get a chance. And it speaks to the times that we're, uh, that we're living in. That's going to do it for this edition of, of uh, the Steam Room. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. The world is ever-changing. Things changing every day, man. There's no telling what we're going to be talking about next week, kid. Hey, and hey, listen, man, I just want to say one more thing, man. Brad, man, your call made my day. And we're just two two dummies on talking, and we get to interview some amazing people. And what you've been through and what you're going through in your life, man, and we can make it better, Brad. Thank you for your call. Echo that, Chuckster. Thank you much. Brad, you stay strong, and you keep uh, keep encouraging folks and inspiring folks just like you did us today. We'll see you all next week. Baby.